Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is the message John preached at Church in the Woods, Sunday, June 6, 2022, on Hebrews chapter 4. In the show notes, there are YouTube links to the Tuesday night online panel discussions on Hebrews. This is where members of the body discuss the verses of Scripture covered in the message. If you want to tune in live, it is live streamed online on Alpha Ministries' YouTube channel as well as their Facebook page. That is Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries' teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on on the website listed in the show notes. God bless you, saints. Here's John. Hebrews chapter 4. We're learning about how to rest. I know if you're like me, there's a lot of times where you need rest. And I don't mean just lay down and take a nap. I don't mean even a good night's sleep. I'm talking about the kind of rest that Jesus talked about when he promised to give us rest to our souls. I mean that kind of emotional rest, that kind of personal rest. And when we live in a chaotic world that's rushing about us, then we need to be able to rest from all our concerns, all our worries, all our frustrations, and all that sort of thing. Well, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 is talking specifically about that. And we've been studying it now for a couple of weeks, so I'm not going to go back and review all the details of what we've studied. But he does tell us in these last verses of chapter 4 that there is a rest that remains for us. Of course, he used the example of ancient Israel coming out of Egypt and them getting ready to go into the promised land, but they couldn't because of unbelief. Um, but he says there is that type of rest, which is really faith in the promises of God. Okay, that's in his protection, in his provision for you. That's really the rest he's talking about. So let me just read the verses to you again, and then we'll... Uh, Trying to finish up chapter 4 today. Breaking into the chapter in verse 9, he says, There remains therefore rest to the people of God. So you've got something good here for you. A rest. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So one thing about the rest that he's talking about is, You don't have to work to get it. As a matter of fact, you cease from your own works when you get into his rest. Then he calls us with verse 11 to this rest. He says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. What's that example? That's the example he used earlier of ancient Israel not believing God's protection and His provisions for them to enter into the promised land. 
That's the example of unbelief he's been talking about. But he says, now we can make the same mistake Israel did. Because there is a rest for us today that we can enter into. But he says, let us labor to enter into that rest. Now don't you find that a little oxymoronic? How do you like that word? Good word, oxymoronic, right? Especially the emphasis on moronic. How do you labor, work to get into rest? Well, he's talking about the kind of rest that Jesus was talking about. You might remember the story recorded in John chapter 6, how Jesus had actually fed the multitudes. There were about 5,000 men gathered together, plus their wives and kids. And it got to be about lunchtime, and, and he asked his disciples, where are we going to get enough bread to feed these folks lunch? Now, probably close to 15,000 people around, right? And his disciples, of course, they weren't worried about where they're going to go get the bread. What they were worried about is what they were going to use to buy the bread. Okay, you know how much that would cost? Yeah. I mean, think of it in terms of McDonald's kids' meal. Okay. I don't know what a kids' meal is now with inflation. It's probably 15 bucks or more, but it used to be two or three bucks, right, to get a kids' meal at McDonald's. Well, multiply that times 15,000 men plus their wives and family, probably about. I'm going to guess 15,000 people. 15,000 times the price of a kid's meal. The disciples were worried about, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get a kid's meal 15,000 bucks? I mean, 15,000 bucks would be closer to like 45 grand to feed them lunch. But Jesus said, I want you to go tell everybody to sit down. Now, there's a little phrase in, in John's Gospel there in chapter 6 that I, I didn't really understand until I, I got into the story a little better. John simply says, after Jesus told his disciples, go make the men sit down, John simply says, now there was much grass in that place. What does that have to do with anything? See, I don't think the disciples went out and said, sit down because Jesus is going to feed you lunch. Okay. I think they might have gone out and said, sit down. Look at all this grass. Take a break. You know, sit down and relax. Anyhow, you know the story. Jesus took a little boy's kid's meal. He blessed it, and he began to pass out the loaves and the fishes to his disciples who in turn took him out and passed it out to those who were set down. Now, as soon as people saw, saw the people sitting down getting served, guess what the rest of them did? They all sat down, right? And God miraculously fed approximately 45,000 people lunch out of this little kid's meal. In fact, when it was over, Jesus said to his disciples, now go gather up the fragments, what's left. 
go get the leftovers. Now, can you imagine how much that had to be for there to be leftovers? There were leftovers. I mean, you can imagine what happened when they started getting the loaves and the fishes. They not only took what they could eat, which John records, they ate as much as they would, which is King James English, for they picked out. <laughs> but they also, no doubt, stashed some loaves in their robes and little fish for later on to go with them when they went home. A doggy bag. But there were still leftovers. Even after that. And his disciples went out and gathered up the leftovers. And when they counted it up and they looked at it, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now why do you suppose there were 12 baskets? Instead of 10, 6, or 8? because there were 12 disciples who were used of God to miraculously meet the needs of that multitude. He can't outgive God. Now, after that day, Jesus went up into a mountain. He sent his disciples across the, the lake and he prayed all night. But the next day, that same multitude came back to the same place they got fed. What do you suppose they were waiting on? Another free lunch, right? They came back to get Jesus to feed them lunch again. Problem was, he wasn't there. They looked around, tried to figure out where he'd go. And someone said he went to Capernaum, across the lake. So they all got in their boats and they traveled all the way around to Capernaum and they found him in the synagogue at Capernaum. And they came to him and said, how'd you get over here? He said, listen, you're not looking for me because you saw and understood the miracle I did yesterday. You're looking to me for another free lunch. Well, that kind of busted them, you know, and they broke religious on them. And they said, now listen, going through the scriptures again, they said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness every day. In other words, God fed our fathers manna every single day. It wasn't just one shot deal. It was every day. And Jesus said, all right. I'm going to tell you the truth here. I don't want you to keep on working for the food that perishes, for the food that goes away. Now, you know what kind of food that is, especially around holidays, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever. You got all this food prepared and you go eat a big meal. And you're very like I am. You eat so much that you can barely roll from the chair to the couch, right? And you swear, I will never eat again. Take a nap, wake up, and you start. See, that's the food that perishes. 
He said, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that I'm going to give you that lasts forever. Now, people he was arguing with, they kind of got the idea of what he was talking about. So they said, okay, okay. We realize there's no such thing as a free lunch. We understand that. So what must we do? Now listen to this carefully. What must we do to work the works of God? Now, Jesus could have told them, well, you know, keep the Ten Commandments. Moses gave that to you thousands of years ago. Keep those Ten Commandments. Behave yourself. Don't screw up. That's not what Jesus said. That's what the religious mindset would say. What Jesus said was here's the work of God to believe on him whom he has sent. See, this is doing the work of God. It's your faith. It's believing on him whom he has sent. Believing on Jesus. And so when our author here says, let us labor to enter into that rest, the labor he's talking about is faith. Believing what God said he's done. It is complete. Now last week in our last study, we, we talked about the fact that of the Sabbath rest is when God rested on the seventh day, he rested from all his works. And it wasn't just because he was tired. It wasn't just because he was lazy. He didn't do any work on the seventh day, or he rested rather on the seventh day in the sense that he celebrated the completeness of his finished work of creation. Now that finished work of creation included not only the original creation he made of the heavens and the earth, but also the new heavens and the new earth that is yet to come. That original creation that he rested from also means he rested, he was satisfied with the creation he performed so that you could be a brand new person in Christ. He created you as a brand new person. You're not the same person you've always thought you were. Oh no. God has created you in Christ Jesus as a brand new person. And he rested from that. That's why Jesus spoke from the cross. It is finished. You see the Old Testament concept of the Sabbath is God has done everything necessary to make you holy. The New Testament correlate is it is finished. It's done. It's over. So the question then becomes, are you going to believe it or not? Are you going to believe what God says is true or not? See, laboring to get into his rest means seeking to believe what God said about you is true. Now, author gives us a little more encouragement here. And I just want to read these verses to the end of the chapter with you. He says, 
Let us labor therefore to enter into rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Laboring to enter into that rest is an exercise of faith on your part. For, he explains in verse 12, the word of God. Now that's the word of God is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word with God, the word was God. The word of God is quick. Old Testament English for alive, living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked, and open unto the eyes of him with whom, with whom we have to do. Now, how does this encourage us? He begins to explain right here in verses 12 and 13 what God has done for you, you can't do for yourself, and how he's doing it. I mentioned to you a moment just simply the end result. You're a brand new creature created in Christ Jesus. That's set in stone, by the way. Everywhere in the scripture, you're going to see that illustrated or stated. This is what God had done. He created you as part of his creation, a brand new person. You're not the same old person you've always thought you were. That's the end result. But how did he do that? How did God do that? Well, here's the explanation, verse 12. For the word of God, Jesus the creator. Remember what John tells us in his first chapter of his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things, including you, were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He created not only the heavens and the earth, not only the new heavens and the new earth that's yet to come, but he created you as a brand new person as part of his creative work. And he rested. He rested because it was very good. He rested because he was satisfied with what he had done. Now, to enter into that rest, we need also to understand how he went about doing that. And this is what he's explaining right here. He's explaining it's the word of God. The same word of God that created the universe created you. And he explains the word of God is alive, is living. He's alive right now. As he announced in the very first chapter of the study, he said, God is speaking to you right now. His final revelation to man his final word, he is speaking to you through his son that is alive. Right now, he's talking to you. Now, there's a whole bunch to say about that. For the sake of time, I'm going to move forward here. Not only is he alive and speaking, but he's also powerful. See, it was by the power of his word that the universe was created. It's by the power of his word 
that every atom in the universe holds together and works. He is not only alive and powerful, but he also says he's sharper than any two-edged sword. He's like a surgeon's scalpel. And what's he doing with that scalpel? What's he doing with that sharp two-edged sword? He is discerning, dividing, separating the three parts that he made you to be, body, soul, and spirit. And he knows all about each three of those parts. But particularly focuses on the intents and your thoughts. What your intentions are and what you thought your thoughts are. He discerns it. He knows all about it. In a nutshell, what he's saying is Jesus has read your mail. He knows you from the inside out. And the reason he's telling us that is because that's how he works. That's how he transforms us. It's from the inside out. It's not from the outside, it's from the inside. See, religion always works from the outside in. Did you know that? They're always wrapped around the axle about what you do. It's like the Jews said to Jesus, what shall we do to do the works of God? It's like the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're always worried, and religion's always worried about what you're going to do. In grace, the word is not do, it's done. Well, Jesus is concerned about are your thoughts and intents of your heart. If you're all wrapped up around the axle about what you're going to do, you miss the whole thing. Because what's important with God is not what you do or don't do. What's important to Him is what you believe. Not what you're doing. Not what you're saying. What you believe. It's just like Paul told the Galatians. It doesn't count what you do or don't do. He used the religious ritual of circumcision as an example. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts with God. What you do or don't do doesn't count. Well, what counts with God? But faith. The kind of faith that continually works itself out in love for others. That's what God is looking for. And that's exactly how we get into his rest. You see, what our author here is concerned with, we understand. What he's really concerned about is that we understand that God is at work inside of you. That same Jesus who ascended into the heavens is right now through his spirit working inside of each one of us to accomplish his plan and his purpose in creation. You see, he created you a brand new person for a reason. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he determined we should do. You're here for a reason and for a purpose created by God in Christ Jesus to fulfill that reason and purpose. Now, 
he goes on to tell us here that everything's open with God. I mean, he reads you like an open book. He knows the intents, your desires. He knows your thoughts. He knows what beliefs that you hold to be true. He knows all of your assumptions. He reads you just like an open book. So there's no hidden agendas with God, okay? There's no secrets with God. Now you can have hidden agendas and hidden motivations with other people. That's part of our manipulation tactic, but not with God. He reads you like an open book. Now that might make you nervous if you think about it. If you get honest with yourself, you might say, dang it, that makes me a little bit nervous that he can read my thoughts. Because if you read my thoughts, I'd be embarrassed, right? But he does, he can read your thoughts, so it might make you a little nervous. So our author changes a little bit here and refocuses our attention in these next verses. And I want you to, want you to hear them as I read them to you. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities and weaknesses, but was in all things, all points, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, how does he, why does he switch over here? Well, because when you realize that God reads your thoughts, when you realize that God knows exactly what your intentions are, that there are no hidden agendas in his sight, you have to consider the problem that all of us fight. And that is, even though God has made us be a brand new person in Christ. Even though he created it just like he created the universe. Even though you are right now a brand new person in Christ. You still have the body that you were procreated with. You still have that physical body that he knows all about. Separate and discern the joints and marrow. He knows all about that. But here's the important thing. In that physical body of yours, he knows there yet resides the leftover conditioning of this world that you have, the Bible calls the flesh. He knows all about it. He knows all about your stinking, nasty flesh. He knows how corrupt it is. He knows what damage it does to yourself and others. He knows all about your stinking flesh because there's nothing hidden from his sight. Here's the good news. You don't have a high priest that doesn't know about flesh. You have a high priest that is fully acquainted with all your failures in the flesh that is fully acquainted with all the screw-ups and mistakes 
that your flesh has made. He knows all about that. You see, being a brand new person in Christ doesn't automatically get rid of our flesh, does it? That's why it's possible and probable that even though you're this brand new person in Christ, created in righteousness and true holiness, you won't act like it all the time. It's highly probable that you'll act like some Tasmanian she-double instead of Christ. It's quite possible your flesh will do the most hideous thing you thought you would never do. Yeah, it's still there. Now here's where we have to make the transition in the gospel. The gospel is not trust Jesus and your flesh goes away. The gospel is trust Jesus and he the word that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword will deal with your flesh because he's the only one that can. You can't change it. You can recognize it needs to be changed, but there's no way you can change all that lifelong conditioning that's yet stored in every cell of this body. You can't change it. You can't prevent it. Now Paul gave us the classic example on this in Romans chapter 7. Here he is, a brand new person in Christ. He's been a Christian now for some 20, 30 years. He's even been an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here's his testimony. What I do, I don't understand. When I want to do what's right, I can't do it. When I want to quit doing what's wrong, I do it anyhow. Sound familiar? Of course it does. Unless you're so filled with pride, you don't see it in yourself. You're just like Paul. Why? Because you're still living in a body that has the presence of the flesh. And you can't do anything about it. Now think about that a minute. Here's a guy, Paul, who knew the law forwards and backwards. Did he have a knowledge of good and evil? Of course he had a knowledge of good and evil. Did he have willpower? He had the willpower of a Pharisee. But he could not do what was right and keep himself from doing what was wrong. In fact, he cried out at the end of that testimony, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And he gives us the answer. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ by means of his spirit living inside. He's the one that transforms us and changes us. That's why he switches here. Our author switches here and says and focuses our attention back on this high priest that knows what we're going through that understands that inward conflict that Paul described in Romans chapter 7. And because we have this high priest, Jesus ascended into the heaven, because we have this high priest that intercedes on our behalf, 
You know what he's saying, by the way? When your flesh flashes and that does that really stupid thing you thought it'd never do, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Father, that's just their stinking flesh. That's not the new person I made them to be. Deal with their flesh. I made them a brand new person. I know they're not acting like the new person I made them to be because their flesh has got the best of them. See, Jesus is your advocate. He's going for that all the time. That's your high priest. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted in all points like we are. And so based on that, he says, let us, therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace. What's the throne of grace? The throne of grace is where God is in charge by his grace of the universe. Now don't confuse grace and mercy. It's not the throne of mercy, even though we receive mercy, first of all, for our unbelief. The throne of grace is not just an attribute of God by which he unconditionally loves you and gives you favor when you don't deserve it. The throne of grace is that his authority, God's authority, to transform you from the inside out to be just like his son Jesus. And that process is what he's involved with right now. He is transforming you from the inside out, changing the intents and thoughts of your heart, changing your emotional makeup, changing your behavior, changing your relationships to others. He is transforming you from the inside out to be just like Christ. He's already at work for your sake. So he says, let's get on board. When we come boldly to the throne of grace, we're not coming based on our own good works, our own merit. We're coming based on what God has done to give us the righteousness of Christ. We're coming in faith that he's going to work in us to do his to will and to do his good pleasure. We're going to trust him with our lives. We come boldly to the throne of grace. And what do we get? First of all, you get mercy. What for? For all your unbelief for all that natural conditioning of the flesh. And then you find grace, the supernatural working of God through His Spirit in you, transforming you into the very image of Christ. Grace that is more than sufficient to meet your need. Now, what he's telling us here in these last two verses is probably the greatest message of the good news that any of us can possibly hear. And we're going to celebrate that now in the close of our service with what's called communion or the Lord's Supper. So if the men preparing communion get ready to serve it to us, I'll make the connection for you. The throne of grace is where you have communion with God. So you can't have communion with God as being separate from Him. 
you have communion with God as being related to him. That's what communion's all about. And the night before he was crucified, Jesus gave us a symbolic meal that we're about to eat. And on that night, he designated this symbol to be a continuous sign for us. It's kind of like what Moses told the children of Israel, ancient Israel, when he commanded them about all the Sabbaths and Sabbath keeping. The Sabbath keeping was to celebrate the rest that God invented. And it wasn't just about religiously not doing one thing or another on the Sabbath. It was about believing what God did in creation. What did God do for Israel? He chose them as his people. What did he do in creation? He created them as his people. And what does the Sabbath represent? A perpetual sign to his people that God sanctified them. God chose them. God set them apart. God made them holy. You see, that's what this communion meal is all about. Jesus slept it with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And he said, as often as you do this, I want you to remember me, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember me. Remember what I've done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. You see, that's how we enter into God's rest. We realize he's done. It's a done deal. We're finished. We don't have to do anything other than to trust him. Now, trusting him and his throne of grace is not a throne of excuses whereby he excuses that nasty flesh of ours. It's a throne of grace whereby he overpowers and overcomes that flesh by his power. Remember, he is alive and he's powerful and he is working in you. As we enter into his rest, the completed picture of what he's doing in you to make you a brand new person, we do so by faith. Faith in what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves in every respect. See, one of the most miraculous things for me about that rest that we're entering into is what's represented by this meal, this communion meal we're about to take. It is through the blood of Jesus that he has actually forgiven our sins. You don't have to work hard and rest and to enter into his rest. You have to believe what God said he did through his blood, the blood of Jesus. It is by his body that we enter into rest. It's not just that physical body that hung on the cross. No, his spiritual body of which you are a member. You are a member of the body of Christ. Do you realize how important that is? Now you can take any one of my members of my body 
and I don't want to lose it. They're important to me. Even this little finger is important to me. I don't want to live without it. And I'll do everything in my power to protect it and guard it. You likewise have been made a member of the body of Christ. That gives you genuine significance as well as security. 